1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host. We have a strong episode for you today. We have Shams Trania of RealJam.com. We talked for about 21 minutes about the first month of the season, and he had some interviews with Derek Fisher and Andrew Bynum, so we go into more depth on those situations. Also talk with Ed Mazinette, who's the editor-in-chief and founder of the Sports Fan Journal, and he's a writer for Slam Magazine. We talked for about 55 minutes on a wide variety of topics. First up is Shams Trania, He's a writer for Real GM. You can check out his author page there. I talk more specifically with him about the pieces that he's written recently with Derek Fisher and Andrew Bynum. He talks with both of them and what he learned from the experience. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Yep, no problem. I appreciate it.
1: So we're about a month in now, and I was wondering what in particular, kind of in a broader sense if you want, has really stood out to you in the season so far?
0: In the Eastern Conference, especially, just how top-heavy it is, how lopsided, you know, a lot of games have been. A lot of the entire Eastern Conference. I mean, you see the, the bottom, especially after maybe the fifth or sixth seed. There are a bunch of teams below 500. A lot of two and seven, three and six, three and seven teams. And then in the West, it's just what it's been for the past decade, just. A lot of really stacked teams, and whoever's going to end up 9, 10, eleven, I mean, they're going to have a case for being in the playoffs in the East. So, just how, just how the parity, just the difference between the conferences, I would say.
1: If it were up to you, would you would you prefer a system where the top sixteen teams, let's say regardless of conference, made it in the playoffs?
0: Yeah, I think that would be more fair, just you know, giving the best teams. A legitimate chance, where you know in baseball you have wild card. Here, you know if we've had teams in the past finish, you know, with 50 wins and not make the playoffs, 45, 48 wins, in, in the East, Eastern Conference you're locked to make the playoffs uh, with a record like that. So I, I, I would say so, but of course this is a system that's been going on for a while now.
1: So you wrote a piece recently on Derek Fisher. It was one of one of my favorite reads recently. I was wondering yeah, if you could walk you. through that a little bit, a little bit with for the for the listeners who might not have seen it yet.
0: Yeah, um, I got a chance to talk to Derek recently uh, for a story. Uh, mostly, I wanted to talk about you know he signed with the with the Thunder in, in 2012. And I feel like a lot has changed since then, just in terms of the role the team especially, you know, no no James Harden, so he, he's witnessed um, guys like you know, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Grant, just really have a huge change of roles, and then they've had to come together as a team too, just being around them, they're as close as ever the team is, and then, you know, it was, it was, in, it was interesting on Derek Fisher, because this is his final season, so he says to everyone, it, it was just, it was, it was interesting because he, he pointed out that the team as a whole, there's an understanding that there needs to be a sacrifice, not just on the court, but, but off the court with their time. And and, and I, like I told him, I, I feel it starts with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and how and, and how they can lead the team in terms of sacrifice. And mm-hmm. and he said, you know, from years past, Kevin Durant's known as a scorer Russell Westbrook as a scoring guard, but this year, more than ever, they're looking to do everything it doesn't matter which facet they wanted. It's it's about just helping the team in whatever area needs they need help. So so that was interesting. Yeah, in in years past, you pointed out that you know Kevin Durant was especially when they played the Lakers that season in the first round. Everyone on the Lakers viewed Kevin Durant as more of a scorer. Um, they really didn't respect his ability to pass. But now you see Kevin Durant putting up eight assists, six assists. So. Just he was more impressed by their overall abilities.
1: In the piece, Derek talks about how it's his how this is definitely his last season. Did you get a sense from him of what he wants to do after his playing career is over?
0: No, I did not. Um, but I mean, you, you would assume he would have unlimited I mean, opportunities either in the front office as a possible assistant coach, or in broadcasting. Obviously, you know he's he's a very astute guy, very sharp thoughtful but you know you said it's my last season unsolicited it's not like i i asked him about that um it was more about him pacing himself and scott brooks talks a lot about how you know Derek doesn't even need to make a shot he doesn't even need to you know come up with a big pass or anything he still impacts the game on on the defensive end just with his leadership as well so i i think I think, you know, he'll obviously have an unlimited amount of opportunities. And and he made clear to me that, you know, he's not looking to pace himself this season. Uh, he, he, He believes this is his last season. So after that, I think he'll have unlimited opportunities in whatever area he wants to go to.
1: Yeah, completely agreed. Last week, I think it was, you talked with Andrew Bynum, and it was interesting uh, hearing what he said about the pain in his knees. I was wondering, just from my own interpretation of it, when he was talking about how he didn't think the pain would increase, was that just during his recovery, or is that a more permanent thing? From What was your take from talking with him?
0: Definitely something he's going through every single day. It seems like the Cavaliers training staff, they, they've really been pushing him. They've really set up a regimen for him before games, after games. During games, I sort of followed him when when I got a chance to see them play. Just before the game, he just goes through this. I wouldn't call it rigorous, but I mean, in terms of how long he spends, he spends about over an hour pre game just shooting mid range shots. Then they bring him to the low post, and then they do these conditioning exercises with, you know, sprinting. And then they take him back to the locker room, he goes to the training room gets whatever treatment he needs done to play that night. Then he plays. And, you know, Mike Brown's been adamant that, you know, they're going to bring him around slowly. He's started a few games now, but he's they, they've lived in his minutes, obviously. Um, because these, these His knees are, um, you know, they're, they're shot to a certain extent. He, he, he's admitted multiple times, you know, that he doesn't feel like it will get any better. This is where he's at. And it's just about pain tolerance and finding other ways to make a difference. Um, he's talked a lot of his footwork in other interviews I've read, but but with me, you know, I asked him um, if he felt like this training staff can you know alleviate the pain a little bit, um, you know, just help him in ways possibly the sub nutrition staff couldn't. And he and he said, you know, you know, not really because this is where it's at. Um, the pain is going to be there. But in one area, he does feel he can improve it as the season goes on. His conditioning, and it was interesting because he told me that he feels he could play, you know, 25, 30 minutes a night. You know, something where he wants an increased amount of minutes. But obviously, it's smart, it's wise to limit his minutes um, and bring him along fully.
1: They also have the benefit of having Anderson Verjao, so they have another center that can that they wouldn't really want to play the two of them together it just seems like you wouldn't have enough spacing so they can they can be more flexible with that as long as he's healthy Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and you know we'll see where this is going to go with cleveland it seems like they've they've been a little bit obviously they're four and seven and they've reportedly had a little a little bit of an issue uh in the locker room in terms of chemistry but you know we'll see what happens with them i mean Everyone's management over there, the coaching staff, they all predict, you know, believe that this would be a playoff team. And, you know, what if 30, 40 games in the season, there's still, you know, five to ten games under 500. Do they look to move a guy like Anderson Virgil? Um, so I think you know, that's a team that's also very fluid right now.
1: What teams kind of in that big grouping of Eastern Conference will end up making it out and being a legitimate playoff team?
0: I still think Cleveland can be, can be a legitimate playoff team. Uh, I know Washington is two and seven, but I think they have a chance to get in there at, in the eighth spot. Obviously, Brooklyn's right now toiling in the bottom, and so is New York. You you gotta see one one of those teams make it. And I think a team like Atlanta, which is off to a six and four start, I think they have a very legitimate chance. I know I just named like four or five teams there, but uh, I I definitely think Atlanta has a legit a legitimate chance. Everyone's been down on them. Uh, when they lost a guy like Josh Smith. But, you know, they re-signed Jeff Teague. They brought in a guy like Paul Millsap, who's, who's very skilled, and he's made a difference already for them. Uh, they re-signed Kyle Culver, who I think made something like 81, he's made a three in 81, 82 straight games. So I, I think Atlanta has a very legitimate playoff chance, even though a lot of people counted them out. But yeah, like I said, it seems very, it is very top-heavy. You have Indiana, Miami, Chicago, and then a lot of people thought Bilkin would be there as well. But I I definitely think it's a very top-heavy conference, and even if you make it into the 6th, 7th, 8th spot, you're you're likely seeing a sweep in the first round.
1: Exactly, and I think what could end up, we'll have to see how it plays out, but I think it could be a really interesting dynamic in the East that, the teams won't know for sure even by the deadline who the buyers and sellers have to be because they might all be so jumbled up. Maybe one or two teams will fall out and one or two two teams will move up. But Mm -hmm. right now there are only three playoff locks in the East. And so those other spots, but I, I fully expect that we'll see some teams establish themselves as buyers or sellers without knowing for sure. Boston could be one of those. Mm -hmm. New York is obviously going to be a buyer because they don't have their own draft picks. They have zero incentive to lose, Mm -hmm. and their coach and players and all that. Because the West, I think, you know, the West is going to – you're going to know if you're in the mix or not. You might not know if you're going to make it or not. But in Mm -hmm. the East, it's going to be – like there's there's no team that that can say right now, you know, we can't make the playoffs if we're remotely healthy.
0: Exactly, exactly. I think that's a very strong point. I mean, you look at the yeah, exactly. You look at the East. I mean, it's you have teams that are two and seven, three and six, and right now they're literally they're a half a game out, and and I think that's going to be something where that's going to be going on off season. You have teams at the bottom there. You know, you have Orlando, Charlotte, and a lot of people expect Philadelphia to drop off. It's funny when you just pull up the standings. Philadelphia's the, the point differential. They're negative six point three. I think. You're right, and it's going to be very interesting. You you have teams like Boston looking with low guy like Gerald Wallace, Courtney Lee, and then you have Toronto, which seems it seems like it's inevitable with the new management that they're going to trade either you know a guy like Rudy Gay or DeMar DeRozan. And a lot of people talk about Jonas like, with and and untouchable, but you know he hasn't had an impressive season so far this season. So it's I mean it's going to be very interesting to see what um, what Toronto does as well.
1: The other big question to me, and it's possible that they'll just wait, is whether Detroit is willing to commit to their having a top three that are all big men in Drummond, Monroe, and Josh Smith, because if they wanted to trade Monroe, and I'm not saying they, they do or they should, mm-hmm. they would it now would actually, this year would actually be a reasonable time if they wanted to do that.
0: Yeah, and it, it seems like they want to see where this can take, where this, you know, Big three in the front court can go how far they can take them, but I think there's there's a real ceiling there because the backcourt is just dismal in terms of its shooting. I mean, you have Brandon Jennings who needs to put up 20 plus shots to get his 20 points nowadays, and you know Chauncey Billups, he's he's he's, he's past his prime obviously, and then they they they're unsure about what they're gonna do with Caldwell Pope, the rookie. His minutes have been really fluctuating throughout the whole year. So far, you know, it's everything you've all the vibes you've gotten out of there is that they want they want to continue to see where this big three in the front court is going to go, how far they can take them, and I mean, they were hoping a playoff seat, obviously. But you're right. I mean, if if they're off to let's say they're they're under five to ten games in February, they could easily let them move on. Especially considering he's he's likely going to leave them in pre agency, given that. He wants a near-max contract, and and Detroit wasn't even willing to, to consider that when he was uh, eligible for an extension, so it's going to be interesting.
1: And Monroe's in the situation where I think a couple other guys are, we'll see if Rudy Gay's there too, where once LeBron signs, and we don't know what Bosch and Wade are going to do, but there are going to be teams that have space and want to use it. I'm not sure the Lakers will be one of them, but there'll Mm -hmm. definitely be other teams that feel that, that it's burning a hole in their pocket and Monroe, Gordon Hayward, Bledsoe, if like those guys are going to, there's going to be a lot of money to throw at guys. And there's a lot of like, LeBron is a remarkable, he's a franchise changing Mm -hmm. piece as we, as we all know, but that kind of next tier down, I think they're good. somebody's going to fall in love with each one of those guys and give them a lot of money, especially the restricted guys, and make it a very challenging decision for the team that has them
0: now. Exactly, and I think that's what also went into the decisions of, you know, a guy like Gordon Hayward to, to, to opt for free agency next summer instead of uh, ironing out a contract extension this year. Um, I mean, from what I also, the two sides, the Jazz and Gordon Hayward never even discussed Anything close to a max deal. They never talk five years. And you, you look at him going to free agency next summer. And as you said, there's going to be a lot of teams who miss out on 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 the top tier of free agents. And then there's going to be lots to pick from those guys. You know, Monroe, Hayward, and then even a guy like Lou Alding. So you know, it's kind of reminiscent of of 2010 when you know a lot of you know New York, Chicago, they had a lot of cap room. They went for the big guns. They did not get them. And then they had to sell for guys like Amari Stadema, Carlos Boozer, eating up a large, large chunk of their cap room for the next four or five seasons. So I think another team could, could capitalize on that, but then could also hamstring themselves moving forward with their salary space. But I think that was definitely a, a, a major you know, sticking point for, for free agents. And then even guys who decided to sign one-year contracts with player options for, for next year, uh, guys like Nick Young, I know Mo Williams did the same thing. But these guys are looking forward to this coming free agency because after the top tier guys, you have a lot of teams, you know, clearing their the cap room, and they're gonna have a lot of space. And if they don't, and if some teams don't capitalize, they're gonna have to dish out money that maybe they didn't thought they'd have to give. There are
1: gonna, I think there are gonna be a shockingly large amount of bad contracts this summer, and it's. It, I think you you laid out you laid out the case and. The other factor in all of it is that there a lot of this ends up coming back to ownership. Like we saw a situation to me with New Orleans now the Pelicans that they were on pace to have a slow rebuild and they could have done that, but it seems like from what we've heard that it was ownership that said, okay, we want to start winning now, and so they had to kind of kickstart that, and that totally changed their timeline. And that'll almost definitely happen for at least one team this summer.
0: Yeah, and, and who knows? I mean, a lot of that might be something to do with enticing Anthony Davis. He was just a rookie, but, I mean, the, the the season, it had to be miserable for him. He was a winner here when he played high school basketball. He was a winner in college, obviously, at Kentucky. His first season, it was, it was dismal, and, you know, he sounded like, you know, it, losing was frustrating for him. Because you're right, you know, when they went out and, and got Kyrie Evans, you get Guzazquez, and and there's going to be a lot of teams this this coming season, that you know they're going to be in the same predicament. Obviously, you have teams like Utah, who it seems like they're positioning themselves very well for top draft pick. But do they want to bring a guy like Gordon Hayward back? You know, the, the indications it seems like people around the league thought, felt that like, you know, if the Jazz really wanted Gordon Hayward back, they would have most likely they would have talked somewhere in the five-year range. Um, but discussions never got there. And then you're also going to have teams like Toronto. If they're going to keep Rudy Gay. Is he, is he a guy moving forward who you can build around? He hasn't shown that. His shooting percentages have fallen terribly down since, you know, a couple years ago he had his best season. So, I mean, a lot of teams are going to be in that position where even right now they're not sure which direction they're going.
1: Makes a lot of sense. What, what players and teams have you enjoyed watching the most in the first month of the year?
0: Golden State is, is a big team. I really enjoy watching Golden State just the shooting, the precision that they have on that team. They can kill you from so many different angles. You have Curry and Thompson, um, and then you have Lee and Bo get down low. And then this year, uh, I'm sure you're much more privy to it than I am uh, down there. But, I mean, they seem like they're really really keen in on, on posting up Harrison Barnes a lot this year. And and from what I've seen, it seems like he's been deadly. As a post-up player this year, um, just his turnaround jumper, uh, his face-up jumper. So Golden State is obviously a big team. Minnesota is also very fun to watch with Rubio, Kevin Love, Kevin Martin, who who had a down year last year in OKC, didn't quite live up to expectations, but he's he's just been balling for for them. Los Angeles, the Clippers, when when everything's going for them, a lot of those teams are in the West. A lot of the a lot of the games in the Eastern Conference can drag a lot, you know. Watching mostly of the Eastern Conference teams thus far this year, in terms of in person, the games can get really ugly. But you know, you have a lot of you know exciting young players in the East, guys like Michael Carter Williams. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the fun scoring up and down type of play exists in the West. So um, with teams like Golden State, so I'm sure you're having fun down there.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a blast. The Eastern Conference team that I've really enjoyed so far has been Orlando when they're kind of playing the right way. They get into lulls and all of that, but Oladipo is really engaging and entertaining. I went to college with Aaron Afalo. I've loved watching him forever. And I've been a big
0: fan of Aaron Afalo as well, going back a few years now. But
1: and and then the other team to me, uh, the ones that you mentioned were all on that list as well, is Portland. Their offense is yes. just a blast to watch. Their defense still makes me frustrated, but their their offense is one of those that it's it's just really cool and the way that Lillard I I admit now I didn't expect Lillard to improve as much as he already has this year as an older rookie. He's done well. Aldridge has looked very good, though sadly I mean he there's so much competition for the All Star game in the West now. That'll be hard but they're a blast. I'm really excited I get to cover them later this week, so that's going to be, it's going to be blast to see them in person.
0: Yeah, the way Damian Lillard and and, 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 and Neil Shade gets a lot of, he should get a lot of credit for the way, you know, he made the bench over there, he brought guys like Mo Williams, the right, I believe, is Portland too. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, just the way he, he supplanted that bench um, and then and it's crazy because you went from all this drama surrounding LaMarcus Aldridge to now they're, what, 9-2, and, and you don't hear anything about it. And I think that's what winning does. Uh, you know, it kills everything. And, and at this point, it seems like, you know, Damon Lillard and LaMarcus Aldridge are along the way to being lost as year, so...
1: The, the West All-Star stuff is going to be absolutely nasty because there are, so many, there are so many talented players. And then you also get into the dynamics where there are guys who are also talented players, but who, like Kobe, Kobe could make the All-Star game without having played in many games, though you, I could argue, I think, that he deserves it just on the aggregate of his work. And because he played well last year, it's not like he's a scrub now in any way, shape, or form. And then, like they're, like, it would be interesting to see if, I, I think he's a very talented player, but if Blake Griffin making it costs somebody like Anthony Davis an all-star birth, just how that, how that could affect perceptions around the league.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think, but, but, but we've seen in years past where, you know, players who might not necessarily deserve an all-star birth, you know, they get it, you know, it reminds me of, you know, Allen Iverson making it in one of the seasons in Detroit, I believe. And then a guy like Grant Hill making it, after he's coming off of injury, but you know I, I think there are going to be a lot of players developing, and the West is always like that. You know, it's deep in that way. You have a lot of a lot of especially in the front court. So you know, a guy like Dirk, he, he's also a solid start. The Mavericks are winning right now, um, but let's say he's not at that twenty and you know eight range that he usually is at. He he could miss the All Star game even if the Mavericks are off to you know surprise start. You know, I think Isaac like Blake Griffin, the Mark at this point. I think the guys like that, that a lot.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a blast having you on. appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. Thank you so much to Shams for coming on. You can read his material on realgm.com. I really enjoy the depth that he goes into, and he does good interviews with players. I learned a lot from his interviews, particularly with Fisher and Bynum recently, but just about everything he does. Next up, we have Ed Maisonette. Ed is the editor-in-chief and founder of the Sports Fan Journal, which is a daily sports and culture publication. He also writes an NBA column for SB Nation called Happy Hour, and he's been a longtime contributor to Slam Magazine. We talked for about 55 minutes go on a wide variety of things, from the early season successes of the Warriors and the possibilities with the Thunder to the disappointments of the Knicks and the Cavs and a lot in between.
2: Hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you so much to Ed for coming on the show. My man Danny Larue, how you doing, brother? Doing well. How are you? Man, I am sipping brown liquor. I am home on a Monday night, and I'm talking to uh, my favorite man from Real GM. Yeah, man, good to be on the show.
1: Thanks. So we're we're a little under a month into the season. What what has really stood out to you on either a positive or negative end in terms of what we've seen so far?
2: Well, I'm, I'll be a homer. Uh, not the homer that you guys probably think. I, I don't know if everybody's familiar with my background, but I'm going to be a homer to where I live. And I live in Oakland, California. And one of the things I started to talk about pretty early on was the emergence of Clay Thompson. And I think everybody's really starting to get a chance to see just what Clay Thompson is capable of. And I said early on, I was like I, I I would be remiss to think that there are a few – shooting guards better than Klay Thompson in the NBA. And I think he's definitely got an opportunity to be an all-star. And lo and behold, now you look up, you know, we're, we're still early, 10, 11 games into the season. Klay uh, shooting 51% from three-point lane. He's shooting seven threes a game. He's averaging over 20 points a game. Um, I thought it was interesting in the game versus Oklahoma City, you know, he was really prominent on the defensive side of the ball. Taking chances, especially in guarding Kevin Durant, the league's le- leading scorer. Um, he's got plenty of length to, you know, hold his own against someone like Durant. And also, you could just see like Sevalosha, the Thunder's best defender. He hadn't guard. He hadn't guarded anybody that had that much of a quick release without hesitation. Klay Thompson would get the ball 18, 19 seconds still with the shot clock, and he's pulling up. And Tabo was just like, what in the hell is going on around here? Like, he's just not prepared. So um, I think it's helped in in stretches, especially when Curry's been off to a slow start. I think I've seen Mark Jackson put Klay Thompson on the second unit, and and clay has been able to buoy the second unit, which has been pretty impressive. Uh, and, I again, I think defensively, he does not get nearly enough credit for what he's able to do. That's what's made – uh, Golden State not just fun to watch, but now people are starting to have this conversation of can they be an, a finals contender? Yeah, his
1: his defense I think has been underappreciated, and I think to a point it's going to continue to be underappreciated as long as Iguodala plays next to him. But I don't think the Warriors care because they'll be so good
2: that it won't really matter. No, nah, absolutely, and and I think too it's interesting to see how well Iguodala is netted being a complimentary guy because. Like, you know, people were actually shocked when Iguodala was selected for the 2012 uh, USA basketball team. Um, And, you know, Coach K perfectly quoted what Andre Iguodala is, and he's a human Swiss Army knife. He can do everything for you on the court. He might not do it great. He might not do anything. I think Andre Iguodala is great at being a great athlete. But if you just were going to give him a grade across the board at almost everything else, he would net B-pluses pretty much anywhere else across the board. And I think being on the Warriors now, and I think we were all a little skeptical as how he was going to fit, but he provides such great spacing in being able to penetrate and dip the Curry and Clay, being able to still be a corner three guy. He's like, he's like almost an ultimate three and D guy if you really think about some of the things he's able to do. Uh, but then defensively, I think he's definitely asserted himself to say, look, and again I just reflect back to the Oklahoma City game I can guard Russell Westbrook I can guard Kevin Durant I can go and train, and and help the second unit and those guys have been so fun to watch and and now I don't know if you notice this Danny but yo Andre Guidala's kind of been clowning around like he's it's not I don't want to say I don't mean that in a bad way but he's having he you could tell he is having a lot of fun he is his, his He's making uh, plenty of gestures after he shoots threes, trying these wild behind the back, you know, passes and fast break. And he's out there mean mugging to the crowd and, and things like that. And it's been awesome to watch. I'm really happy for him. The further this team gets down the line, I'm just con- going to continue to be intrigued to see what this looks like at the midway point and how they develop into being a around the team at the end of the season.
1: I think that playing in Denver, as he did, was probably fun because of the scheme that they ran. But the Warriors are really fun because of that and also the personnel. I, I've envisioned that if, you, if you're if you willing to be a complimentary guy, players like Stephen Curry and Clay and Andrew Bogut and pretty much everybody, the supporting players as well, would be really fun to play with because if you want open looks, you'll get them. And if you want to do more, they're generally willing to give you the ball.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you said it, said it right on the head. Like, Andre Iguodala was arguably, arguably the best player on the Nuggets. Now in the Warriors, he falls in line as maybe being the third or fourth best player on the team, depending on how you look at the, the roster. So, and and to be fair, like uh, it's also some something to be said about the fact that he's paid, and you know some players play exponentially better when they're in a contract year, um, but other players really play really play better when they have stability. And they know that for the next three, four, five, six years, they're going to be taken care of. And Igu- Iguodala has that now. And, you know, we forget that at the beginning of the last season, he was on the, he was on the 76ers. And the trade happened, and, you know, he was on the, on the Nuggets midseason, and now he's in the Golden State. So, you know, he's literally traversed the entire country from the East Coast to the Rocky Mountains to now the West Coast in the span of, you know, just about a year. So I think he's going to settle in. He's going to get, continue to get even better.
1: I think that he he's a really good poster child to me of this of the level player who they get to kind of a point in their career where they're not they're not old enough to kind of be on the downside but they know what they want and he chose the right situation for what he wanted. And I think that's a great thing. He didn't go where the money was necessarily. He went to the best fit situationally.
2: Yeah. Well, into yeah, I think it it was interesting cuz I think what he signed for 4 and 48 with the Warriors and I think the other offers were 4 and 52 from Detroit and four and 54 from Sacramento. And then you also have to start asking yourself a question. Do I want to be paid minimally more and be miserable in Sacramento or stay in Denver where it's a rebuild? Or can I shave a few million off and be in the lovely Bay area and probably recoup that money back? Because everything that Andre Vidal has said is that he wants to invest in Silicon Valley and he can do plenty of investing in Silicon Valley Um, pretty quickly, and I think he's already got investors lined up, and why wouldn't they be lined up? And he seems really excited about that um, from the conversations I've had with him.
1: That's interesting. I haven't had any of those conversations with him. He also has an owner that has some experience in that as well. Absolutely. And and
2: actually, I think one of the minority owners, um, if you asked me to tell you his name, I would mess it up, so I'm just not going to say it. But I think um, one of the minority owners was the VP of um, engineering at Facebook. And then, of course, when the IPO hit, he cashed out and he immediately bought a minority stake into the Warriors. And I'm pretty sure Iguodala um, and him have had uh, a few conversations about what's going on in the tech world. So I think borrowing the words from Clinton Portis, former Washington Redskins running back, Iggy's pockets uh going to be straight.
1: I think that there's a really interesting Not, – I'm not implying anything here, but I think between, that, between the situation of being able to get financial advice from people who are plugged in and the Knicks signing J.R. Smith's brother, I think we're on the frontier of things that don't count as <laughs> circumvention for the cap but are just kind of like, oh, okay, so this is all right, but other things aren't.
2: Yeah, um, no, and, and I think that's probably a good transition because I know you asked me, about what are the great things and the not-so-great things that's happening in the NBA. And, yo, the New York Knicks are starting to look like Pookie from uh, New Jack City, man. They're looking real desperate out here in these streets. Uh, They look lost. They look burnt out. They look decrepit. They look bamboozled and hoodwinked right now. And the fact that I believe – and you might have the particulars of this trade offer that they sent the Celtics – uh, I believe this morning, but I believe they they sent uh, they were trying to send Stoudemire and Felton and a pack of jelly donuts and a pack of black and miles and a, a Durag from three weeks ago over to Boston for Rajon Rondo. And I'm pretty sure Danny Ainge and the crew over in Boston summarily just laughed on the phone and hung up and and, and went on about their merry way. But I mean, I think Danny, the question I'd ask you is, what is what what what's really happening with the Knicks right now, just from a roster standpoint, and why is it not working at all?
1: Well, I think they're a really good example of what happens when you're when you commit to a core and then you don't have a GM or or ownership is willing to trade away picks. So you can't build assets. And so what happened with them is that they they gave up all these assets to get Carmelo. So you look at the difference between what they did and even what what Miami did to get LeBron and any of those situations. They gave up a lot of talent and all that. And they haven't had they got Shumpert in the draft. Who's he's done fine. I I like Shumpert. They don't have a whole like a lot of pieces that are coming in that are good. They did well with Prigioni, they did well with Copeland last year, but then they couldn't retain Copeland. So they have this roster and the really it's it's hard for them to add new pieces and the pieces they have just they aren't perfect together. Like we talked a little bit about how the Warriors, their team together makes sense. The problem with the Knicks is they only have two players who play defense. Right. And it's hard to win in the NBA if in a nine man rotation you only have two
2: guys who play defense. Absolutely. And now they're trying to trade one of them, if I'm if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, and now now they're trying to trade one of them and the other one's hurt so they can't trade it. Right. So so and and the the funniest thing about the Knicks in terms of that, in terms of trades while well, I was talking about how they're kind of struck in is that right now they can't trade a first round pick. I believe if we're talking about like right now they can't trade a first round pick any year more soon than 2018 and because of the stipian rule and they can't trade it but then once a draft happens i don't think they can do it for another couple years so their asset pool what they can say like let's say they want Rajon Rondo to trade the things that they can theoretically give up that would make boston interested is pretty much just amon shamper right because at, like i think about the nba in terms of Players who are overpaid, players who are underpaid, and players who are properly paid, with giving additional consideration to when a guy can leave without compensation and if a guy, if you know, if, if a guy is going to be restricted, so you can keep him. And every guy on the Knicks, maybe with the exception of Prigioni and definitely Scherbert and Tim Hardaway Jr., all of those guys are either overpaid or properly paid. So it's hard to it's hard to see them as being particularly valuable, except that some of them are good basketball players.
2: Right. And and I think the conversation is going to begin where someone's going to say – well, I think Golden State – I hate to keep bringing up Golden State, but they're a good example where they bas- they're basically like, look, we've got these deteriorating assets that are on the last legs of their contracts. Please take them off their hands so that you can begin tanking for the 2014 NBA draft. And I thought if if, if Boston was going, were going to take that take that trade, I think it would be the best way to say, look, we're, we're not really – here for this season. We're all all systems go for twenty fourteen. Uh but I think from from Boston's standpoint that they look at it and say, Well, we can be really crappy and still keep Rondo on our team and he could be a essential building block for us moving forward. We don't need to make that trade to get that much worse. We probably can still land a top three, top four pick. But I think there's gonna be a team that comes along and may and it might just be the Knicks standing pat because I don't know if uh, I can remember a day when the boston celtics of 2007 were really bad and they had paul pierce on the roster and then they decided to trade all of their uh, promising assets to go get kevin garnett and ray allen and i can also remember a time where the miami heat decided hey look man the way is not doing well and we're going to trade all of our assets so we can go get lebron james and and, and chris Bosch. now To a degree, I I guess this is a a bit of a a flip, but if you say, hey, look, we're really trying to get Andrew Wiggins, Jabari Parker, Julius Randle, Marcus Smart, whoever, and we're willing to eat salary now and even for the next couple of years to assure that we're going to get a top two, top three, top four pick, I think it's actually something to consider because people think, well, unless they're on expiring contracts, why would you want to do that? But it's not like... If you get the number one pick, Andrew Wiggins is going to cost you 12000000 million. You're getting him at $4 million. And eventually those contracts are going to expire, but you are going to be sorry anyway. And then when that cap relief comes, Daniel LaRue, you might have $20, $30, 40000000 million of free cap space, and you're just starting to see the emergence of a young player like a Jabari Parker, Julius Randle, or Andrew Wiggins, or Marcus Smart. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you one thing, and it's gonna blow your mind. Uh, the Knicks actually, their pick belongs to Denver, unprotected.
2: So that's right. That's
1: the that's the fascinating thing, and that's to me is the most interesting part about the Knicks is, they have no incentive to tank this year, but next year they have their pick, so they do. Mm-hmm. So that's when you could see the really crazy stuff. And and when you're talking about with expiring contracts and everything, the parallels. If if Melo, let's say Melo opts out, and let's say Melo leaves. Under, I, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but let's say it is. Basically, every other core piece, other than J.R. Smith, of the Knicks expires in some form after next season. So the summer of the summer of 2015, right? They could completely blow it up for next year, and and do and do that exact thing, and they're going to be good guys in that class too. So J- Jill Okafor is is I would say in the same caliber as maybe everybody but Wiggins in this class. I love him. Okay. And and so they could do that then. This year, I think they have to go for it because they don't really have an incentive not to. And that's why I think the that this this season in terms of tanking and all that stuff is going to be really interesting because there are teams out there like the like the Wizards are going to be in a weird stance because they're going to try to make the playoffs because they want to make the playoffs. But as soon as they're out, they keep their pick. So I could imagine them just blowing it all up, firing Grunfeld and doing all that. It's going to be fascinating once we get close. I mean, the Jazz will probably be in the lead by a mile by then, but everybody else could be more interesting. Well,
2: and that's what makes the lottery a sham and a, and a, and a spectacle at the same time because a team like Utah who they're going to get, Praise for playing young talent, but like I said earlier, it's not like they don't have Andres Beadrins and Richard Jefferson over there soaking up, I believe, forty percent of their cap space going into uh, this season. But they're sorry. And you look at the Wizards, and they might as well, you know, we might look back at the Otto Porter pick, and you know, who knows what they're going to have in that pick. And uh, and I think they're going to be drafting for another small forward unless they, unless Julius Randall is there um when they pick in the draft which would be perfect for them by the way but they're going to be in a situation where hey we're not it's not looking like we're going to make the playoffs and and like we're going to get to like that 30 or 40 game mark where people are going to start making those decisions and that's going to be fun and i'm really excited about it and i think there's going to be some champions there could a championship could swing on it too because you look at teams like Oklahoma City or Houston or uh, – not Brooklyn, but even Miami or Indiana where they have these pieces that they're probably still a piece away from feeling great about themselves, and right now they feel very good. And one of those bottom feeders could come up, come off of an asset and say, look, man, we really don't care about winning. Please just take this guy from us and give us a second-round pick and like one of your bench players, and like let's make the money work and make it happen. I mean we already saw – um Gort the Phoenix to go to Washington and people were thinking, well, Washington just solidified, you know, probably a six seed in the East and, you know, Washington has the second worst record in the Eastern Conference at two and seven. So I don't know. I'm I'm just intrigued about about it and and, and I'm hoping selfishly that Oklahoma City gets a wing player that <laughs> is worth a damn, but I digress.
1: The other, the other guy that, if he's healthy, that I think could swing it, whether it's a trade or a buyout, is Mecca Okafor. Like, if Okafor gets bought out and is willing to take the minimum for a team, that could swing the championship.
2: No, absolutely, um, I agree with you. I mean, if he's willing to take the minimum, it's going to sound scary, but I could even see a team like Miami saying, you know what, Greg Golden, this been real, but let's bring, let's bring Emeka Okafor to the squad. And I, it, it would be so hard for Mecca Okafor to say no. Or you look at Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City would love to have Okafor on the squad. Or even a team like the Clippers. He, the funny thing is, you would say the minimum, but then it would probably end up being a bidding war. And somebody would say, you know, how much can we really afford to give them? And then all of a sudden you have people overpaying for a at Okafor and then that would just be hilarious.
1: Yeah. A philosophical question. I thought about this with, with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss when he was on a couple weeks ago. Do you feel personally that the draft is should be about balancing talent you know like fixing creating more parity or do you feel it's more about getting talent into the league and parity doesn't really matter to you in terms of designing it uh,
2: there are there are organizations that have proven to be futile in assessing talent I think the Los Angeles Clippers is probably the best example over the past 20 or 30 years or so uh, but then you see teams like of course like the Spurs where they're they've proven that it doesn't matter where where they're drafting they're going to be able to find talent that can help them win win championships. I think that the lottery it is um you know it's if every if all if everyone's shooting the same same bow and arrow and some people struggle and and things like that then i think the lottery could be a good thing but when you're gaming the system it's it feels like someone's cheating but i've also gotten to this point now where i enjoy seeing how terrible some teams can be because yo the utah jazz are terrible but then i look at the the Philadelphia 76ers, and they're somehow five and seven. And and Daniel LaRue, if the playoffs started right now, they would be a four seed in the Eastern Conference, which is fine to be (laughs) awesome. Uh, But to answer your question, you know, I'm a nerd a bit, and I I, I am an appreciator of, like, you know, English Premier League soccer. And I see how these other leagues where there's, like, hey, look, man, you pay to go to the highest bidder, right? and that would be a great and a bad thing for something like this season. Could you imagine if imagine if Andrew Wiggins went on the open market? His contract would probably – he would probably command $200 million on the open market right now. And, like, the bidding war could get so absurd that it would be, like, unfathomable, and that would just be awesome to see. So, But then, of course, we would have what happens in the Premier League. You'd have, like, five teams of power and 25 teams that are just bottom feeders, right? So – the lottery is probably a good thing. It's probably the best option we have. I don't really have a great way of fixing it. Um, I know some people love Bill Simmons' idea where you turn the lottery into, like, a bit of, like, or the you know, the people that don't make the playoffs into a bit of a playoff on its own and where the best team, the team that has the best record that missed the playoffs gets the best record, so there's still a reason to be competitive. Um, I, I think that would be interesting. But, unfortunately, we don't deal in an NBA that's very liberal on those types of things. And I think this might just be the best thing that we have. To me, in terms of I like your hypothetical of Wiggins on the open market, to me
1: the way that you fix that is actually a way that they've established in the NFL, though they haven't done it really that way, is with a hard cap. Because if you have a hard cap, then you can't have an English Premier team that gives a transfer fee for like Gareth Bale – well, for like that's not EPL, but it gives for Gareth Bale or whatever. And so that would prevent that process. But I, un- I understand, though it frustrates me to no end, that the players, the players who have no representation in the Players Association are guys who are not yet in the league. Mm-hmm. And, the le- and so because of that, the Players Association has consistently taken a stand that the most important people in terms of the CBA are the rank-and-file NBA players. So the people who lose the most are max-caliber guys. And rookies, they're the only two groups that are systematically, not rookies, but young guys, that are systematically underpaid. And you could fix that, but the question is, who's going to make it that way? Because I think, and, and if you want to talk about the way that you stop super teams in the NBA, it's by changing the max salary structure. Because if you make it so that a guy can only make 30% of the cap, they're going to go together because why, why else would you do it? If you can't make more money, then you might as well have more fun. Right,
2: right. Well, yeah, and I think it's a great point. Uh, but you know, what, if you took the numbers of the of the elite, the upper upper crust, which you're talking about, maybe ten to fifteen players that really can, I'm not even saying deserve a max contract, but the people that can get a max contract, you've got maybe what twelve to fifteen people that can get that, and then you've got the other side of the people just entering the league, which which are um, now subject to the rookie scale, right? so you're talking about maybe 5 10% on the back end and you're talking about maybe 3% on the front end. So yeah, you're right. Like the middle class is the middle class is dominant when it comes to commanding, you know, pay scale and things like that. Which the funny thing about that is America with the I would say the, uh, democratic liberal America would love for the world to be, love for America to be like that, but that's a totally different conversation on a totally different podcast on a totally different day. But yeah, I mean I, I just think that That's just kind of the way it is, and so I am – you know what, Danny? I I will say this. The only thing that scares me about the draft is that you sometimes get scared to see potentially great players go to a team that you just don't want to see them on, and I I hate to say this, but I hated to see Trey Burke go to Utah. Not that I have anything against Utah, but I really wanted to see Trey Burke go to somewhere where I could could see him potentially flourishing and and growing. But I say that then thinking about – Kevin Durant when he went to Seattle and then essentially being the the face of the franchise in Oklahoma City and people were wondering well where is his career going to go and like it just took off and now Oklahoma City is this niche niche organization where like hey like this little town that could could potentially really win an NBA championship so maybe Trey Burke could do that but then we also see things like being in Siberia, like the Sacramento Kings organization, you just go there and your career turns into a bit of a wasteland because it's an inept organization. You've got shaky coaching. Your talent pool is bereft of anything that is considered hope and promise. And all of a sudden, you see someone like Tyreek Evans is like, what happened to that guy? Now, Tyreek Evans did get $11 million on the open market, but that's – Another conversation for another day as well. So my
1: example of that in recent times is Michael Kidd Gilchrist going to Charlotte, but my all time one was the one that always made me really sad was Sean Livingston going to the Clippers back when the Clippers were what we all think of them as. Right. But but to me, the thing that's really that's really kind of irritating about that part of the process is not that really that a guy starts there, but that the team has complete control over their second contract. So if you have a guy, let's say Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is un- is pretty much unquestionably, unless he gets hurt a million more times, a max contract guy. So if assuming that he's going to spend the first eight years of his career in in Cleveland or wherever Cleveland wants to send him, because he has no control over that, unless he is willing to bite the bullet and take the qualifying offer and then go somewhere as an unrestricted free agent. So take the huge financial risk of that. And so like you look at guys, you know, Kevin Love is going to be he went one year in college. He's going to be a I think he'll be turning 27 before he before he gets the chance to
2: choose his own team. Yep. Well, and I think LeBron LeBron the, is the biggest example of that. And people want to say he betrayed Cleveland and he did he did these all these things, but LeBron James gave 7 years to Cleveland. And people forget like that was 7 years of Cleveland being you know the one of the original Siberia-like teams in the NBA to being a profile being a headlining organization and then he left and it went all down to you know hell in a handbasket but you know he already knew if he wanted to set up his money the right way that he was going to have to do He was going to have to give him a second contract and and that I think that's the interesting thing is that if you're a good player and you you show promise the organization has every opportunity to show you that, Hey, we're going to try to build around you. And we seen, we saw that with, with LeBron. We saw that with Carmelo. um, We saw that with Dwayne Wade. Um, We've seen, we're seeing it now with Oklahoma city with Durant and Curry and some of the, and Rondo and some of these guys, but then you see guys like John Wall or DeMarcus cousins where they get finished with their first contract. And the organization is really shaky. Like, I'm not sure if we want to give you this deal. Now, they ended up giving him the deal, right? But you, there was a lot of trepidation and hesitation when it came along with that. And you look at where Washington and Sacramento is right now, and you probably have some second-guessing going on saying, well, should we have given John Wall a, a – what? Did he get a max contract or a near-max contract for basically putting up you know, a 22 – seven and four line for two months at, uh, at the end of the season like that's the reason why you know you want to give him a max contract like has he really proven enough to, sh- pro- to show that he deserves that and I think the same thing with DeMarcus Cousins just showing that he's got all the talent and these are tough decisions for organizations to make now Danny I would say that it was intriguing to see what Minnesota did with Pekovic because They let the market bear out what they're going to be willing to pay him because they have the final say on will we sign this guy or not, and will anybody make an offer if they hit restricted free agency. And Pekovic was a restricted free agent. He was out there forever. forever. At some point I was like, man, Oklahoma City, just do it. But I'm a homer and I'm selfish, and I'm just like, I just wanted to have everybody. But he was sitting right there to be bid on. And who knows, maybe Minnesota would have just – you know, reupped on any offer that was put up for Pekovic, but I would say that Minnesota got Pekovic on a deal. Do you know what the final numbers were for Pekovic's deal? I, I can
1: pull it up. Josh Smith was on the market, and he and he just basically nobody bid on him because it's such an advantageous position to be the team, and that's the reason why I was so critical of the Cousins and Wall extensions was because the system is so stacked in favor of the drafting team when a guy's a first round pick, that they had all the leverage even if they waited a year. Unless a guy would, could faithfully convince a team that he's willing to, to pull the Ben Gordon and sign the qualifying offer and then be able to leave, there's no there's no reason for a team to, to do that. So Pekovich got five years sixty million. So that's a lot, but not a not an insane amount for him.
2: Right. And I think if he was on the market right now, he would probably his number would probably edge closer to fifteen million. I'd say would would I think that'd be yeah. fair, you know. So yeah,
1: he, he's a lot younger than Bogut. Exactly,
2: and Bogut ended ended up getting what three years and what forty four or something to that degree. He got. He, I
1: think he got three thirty six, but then incentives could push it up to forty two. I, I think that it's 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 in that range. But yeah, I mean, Bepekovich is substantially younger, and he doesn't have the injury history that made Bogut so shaky. I mean, the reason that the the reason that the Bucks, I don't know if you could call it giving up on him. I mean, that's how I interpret trading Montellis at that time. But they the reason wasn't that they didn't think he was going to be a good player. It's that they never thought he was going to be healthy. Right. And and that's that was a justifiable opinion from where they were and the Warriors and but in that situation and I think that was a great example of the difference between the power of restricted free agency and unrestricted is that I my feeling on this and I wrote about it a little bit was that the Warriors had to be legitimately scared that Bogut was going to leave because whether or not it was justified that he felt hurt by them going after Dwight Howard. He was an unrestricted free agent, so he could go wherever he wanted and there was nothing they could do. If he decided, I want to go to the Lakers for the minimum, they could do that. If he wants to go to Dallas for the maximum, he can do that. And so because of that, and because of the fact that they didn't have the cap space to find somebody else if they lost him because of the way that the CBA structured, they freaked out and basically and, and, gave, and gave him a, a contract that I think you can justify for both sides. Because they saw that ramification, but guys like John Wall, the team didn't have that because worst comes to worst, you just sign him for the same deal next year.
2: Agreed. Agreed
1: 100%. Let's talk a little bit about your Thunder. Do you think that this team, as presently constituted, can
2: win a championship in the next two years? In the next two years? That's interesting that you put that time frame on this team. I actually think that, as presently constructed, this team could win an NBA championship this year or next year. Now, the likelihood, I think, isn't as high as we'd like it to be. But look, I think this year, this team is pretty much the team that they are, unless they decide that these the first-round draft picks that they have stored as assets, um, the young talent that they have, and they decide that one of them might be expendable if that's um, Reggie Jackson, Jeremy Lamb, Perry Jones III, whoever, which is which is funny because you notice the player I didn't say was Stephen Adams. He is probably the most, the least expendable player on the, on the Thunder that's, you know, a new a newly acquired draft pick. They're not giving up on Stephen Adams at all. So, like, if anybody calls for him, the answer is going to be quickly no, I would imagine. So, you know, if they decide, which I would personally maybe not have a problem with, if they decide, hey, look, we're going to package, you know, PJ3 and a first-round pick, and maybe you know another player to say we're going to upgrade at the wing position or we're going to upgrade in the front court, then I think that could be something pretty interesting for Oklahoma City. I've even heard some people say that hey, Oklahoma City should consider making a run for Danny Granger, and I'm just like, I don't see where that money is going to come from to get him. But if we, if Danny Granger somehow lands on Oklahoma City, I'm not going to stop it, and I think that would be an intriguing move. I think they'd probably have to give up Perkins to get him, and if I have no idea why Indiana would ever want Perkins, so I don't think that trade's ever going to happen. But here's the thing. Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook are still getting better. Serge Ibaka is still getting better. We keep forgetting that these guys are still 25, 24, and 24 years of age. But I, I think the, every single day the hot seat the seed is going to continue to get hotter on Scott Brooks because I've just decided that I think Kevin Durant is the Eeyore of the NBA because he always looks miserable. When we were in the arena – at Oracle for Oklahoma City versus Golden State, I mean, good Lord, I saw Reggie Jackson looking off Kevin Durant. I saw Serge Ibaka looking off Kevin Durant. the only person on that team that has earned the right to look off Kevin Durant is Russell Westbrook. And, ladies and gentlemen, you all know the scorn and the slander and ridicule that you guys have given Russell, I made up his middle name, but I wanted it to be Geronimo Westbrook for doing the things that he's done on the court. But look, he's earned it. And there's so much hatred that goes to Westbrook, but he's earned his right to say, hey, look, I can make a play. But Reggie Jackson hasn't earned that right. Serge Ibaka hasn't earned that right. Jeremy Lamb hasn't earned that right. And Kevin Durant looks miserable playing basketball sometimes. And its is, its is, it, it is a terrible thing to watch. And – Scott Brooks has not proven to me that he knows how to solve these types of situations. And I always – there's always this this belief in the back of my mind that though Columbus City are winning in spite of Scott Brooks instead of because of Scott Brooks. And that's the thing we used to think about Eric Spolstra. But I think over time we've seen Spolstra do things to put Miami in situations to win, even if it's just lineup changes, even if it's just slight tweaks to the scheme. And putting players in certain positions, being, being put, a, put putting Battier in the corner or putting LeBron on the block or giving Dwayne Wade more rest, little moves that you don't see those subtleties happen with Oklahoma City at all. Um, in fact, I think actually um, Oklahoma City, if anything, they have become more predictable and I think has made them more susceptible to losses against teams they have no business losing to. I mean, I think that's hurt them more so. That's the only thing that scares me more so in the playoffs is that, You know, you can only play in isolation ball so much. And even if you have Westbrook and Durant to do those things, um, and then you can kick it out to Serge Ibaka for a 17-footer, like, how much, how far is that really going to take you? And, like, at this point, they really need Reggie Jackson to be, you know, Reggie Jackson has turned himself into Westbrook, you know, Jr., which is kind of hilarious. But he's become that type of guy. They need Jeremy Lamb to be a spot-up three-point shooter good lord like that's that's a scary sight to behold they need Derek fisher to be a knockdown three-point shooter they need stephen adams to be able to play 20 minutes to be a sufficient big man and so when you start putting those things into the into the formula then it starts to get get a little scary but the only caveat to all those all those things i said is, is i think the west is still very much up for grabs and as great as san antonio looks right now and you see how portland is shooting like for three-point land right now. Clippers are still going to get better. Houston's going to get better. Um, Golden State, is they look awesome. But Oklahoma City, I think, is still right there. It's interesting that you brought up Spolstra
1: because, to me, the the defining characteristic of Spolstra is his willingness to try almost anything to see if it works. And the defining characteristic of Scotty Brooks is his stubbornness. Almost no other coach, given the tools that they have, would still be playing Derek Fisher, would still even have him on the roster as a guy who plays as opposed to being like an assistant coach. And he was stubborn with Perkins. I mean, it took Perkins' injury for him to really play Adams very much. Mm -hmm. And I I felt for about two years now that the the real ceiling for Oklahoma City is their ownership's apparent unwillingness to pay the luxury tax. But their other ceiling is Scotty Brooks because he just doesn't, it doesn't seem like he has the interest or desire or whatever it is to try a bunch of stuff, throw a bunch of stuff to the wall and see what sticks. It's kind of the, it's kind of the idea for me of a guy who kind of, he had a move that worked for him in high school and so he's going to stick with it until somebody stops him, but it works well enough that it's like, okay, I'm going to keep rolling with that.
2: Well, I, 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 only agree to a degree I will say he's tried some things. I thought it's, it's been interesting to see him put a lineup out there with, like, Westbrook or Jackson at the point, And he's basically going Durant, PJ3, Abaca and Perkins or Adams on the front line, which has been interesting to watch, to say the least. I will say that it's interesting to see how much freedom he's given Reggie Jackson and, and, and Jeremy Lamb. I mean, he's letting Reggie Jackson be Russell Westbrook. And it's netted some results to the point that reggie jackson is might have to start being considered as a potential sixth man of the year like i don't think he's there yet but i think he's starting to get himself in that conversation you know which which is a boon for for oklahoma city definitely i also but but i, I think some of the finger might have to be pointed more at sam presti than scott brooks too well, I, I think it deserves to be pointed at brooks but i just think you start looking at the makeup of this roster it's one thing to accumulate talent, but it's another thing to accumulate the right talent. And if you have someone like Reggie Jackson, do you need him to be Westbrook-like? Um, if you have someone like Jeremy Lamb, who's a ball-dominant guard who's great at slashing, would he bet? Would, would does he benefit being on this team more so than maybe a shooter like Wesley Matthews? And I know Wesley Matthews is established, but the type of player like Wesley Matthews who has a slightly different skill set, um, and I, and I think with you know when you're accumulating assets, you sometimes you know you worry about getting the best talent first, and then you sort out and to do with it later on. Uh, but at this point, they are in a position where they they're they're in their championship window, and I don't think that's anything blasphemous to say. And I think you know everybody's already you know when James Harden left for Houston. People are like, oh, it's, it's, it's going to come real quick that, you know, Kevin Durant is going to go to Washington, D.C., or he's going to go to Houston to go hard. And, like, they've already, they're have already thinking about ways of getting Kevin Durant out of Oklahoma City. And they're already trying to think of ways to get Kevin, uh, Russell Westbrook, to go to L.A. to pair with, with Kevin Love and go play for the Clippers or the Lakers. Like, these conversations are already happening. Um, and I don't think that Sam Presti is worried about reading those press clippings, but what I would say is that Sam Presti has to be concerned about keeping Kevin Durant and R- Russell Westbrook happy. And if they're not and, and to your point, you mentioned something about being willing to spend over the tax. I've always looked at it like I don't necessarily think they're not unwilling to spend over the tax, but I think they are there is something that is really restrictive with this salary cap where you don't want to double dip into the tax. And I think they look at the way this roster is currently built and they're trying to do whatever it is in their power to not double dip this year so that next year they can spend more and then the year following they can spend more. And then they're also gonna have Perkins coming out Perkins coming out the books. Um, and they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to probably replace Cephalosha, uh, and they're probably gonna have to replace Collisade, and those things are gonna cost money. So you could call it money management, but you, you, uh, these, but this, Oklahoma City's not the only team having to deal with these issues, um, but they're probably the most high-profile team that has to deal with this issue, and I think that's why the criticism's going squarely on the ownership of the Thunder.
1: That's. Uh- it's interesting. I was just just a random thought, but I think it's relevant. We've been talking about coaches and teams and systems. To me, I, I was thinking. I've thought about this, and you you follow the Eastern Conference, so I can feel comfortable asking you this. Is there a reason why we think that Mike Brown is a good NBA head coach? He is.
2: <laughs> um, they, we believe we the, the 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 pundits and the prognosticators have told us that. Mike Brown is a good defensive coach. Uh, He came of the Greg Popovich School of Hard Knocks. And when he was in Cleveland, he definitely had a strong defensive unit. It also helps to have people like Verge Allen, LeBron, um, on your roster who can play really good defense and they had a ton of people who could rebound they had Ben Wallace on that squad so on and so forth and then when they when he was at the lake well i guess the lakers probably isn't a great example but anyway he's proven <laughs> he's shown that statistically he's been able to put a strong defensive unit out there i think that's been his calling card now you're also asking this man to turn water into wine uh with the talent that he's got on cleveland right now and i don't know if and and i don't know if he's got anybody there that really wants to play defense because I think, you know, er- er- Verizow has actually been really inconsistent this year. And Kyrie Irving is challenging Damian Lillard um, and James Harden as the worst defending guard in the NBA. Dion Waiters is Dion Waiters. You know, Tristan Thompson is is a sufficient defensive big man, but he's nobody's gonna call and tell your mama about. And I couldn't name a small forward on the on the Cleveland Cavaliers right now. <laughs> From a talent standpoint, they are struggling uh, still, and you know they're better than they were a year ago. Um, but I, I don't necessarily want to criticize Mike Brown for having a struggling defensive unit. And of course, we never really pra- we, he was never known to be praised for his offense. So I'm just going to say that right now, they've got a coach in there that the ownership is familiar with they're really going to tell Mike Brown, they're telling Mike Brown to hold the line and don't embarrass us too much. And let's see if we can continue to build in the coming years. And if, and if he gets to a point that Scott Brooks got to or Spolcher got to, or Frank Vogel, I think ownership now they're really willing to take chances on fresh, young, new coaches. But then if the talent proves that it's either too much for them and they can't handle it or that they can grow with that coach, then they will. But I think they're going to give Mike Brown every opportunity to exhaust that opportunity before they decide to go elsewhere.
1: Here's why I asked the question. Go ahead. If I, if I'm LeBron James yep. and I'm looking and to me, you, he, he left Cleveland for a completely logical reason, whether if you want to argue about the re the, like how he did it, I think how he did it was unbelievably bad. But if you'd given any of us the opportunity at 25 years old or younger to make that decision, we would do about the same thing. Mm-hmm. But if so but so, if you think of that, that he left for a logical reason that they were having trouble procuring talent and he and whether or not he thought they were mismanaged, then the job of Cleveland in the last since he left was to show him why you're a changed team and why he can take you back in that sense, and so hiring Mike Brown, who while he was praised at the time for how he for you know that he won Coach of the Year and i think it was part of the reason he won coach of the year is because none of us realized how amazing lebron james was and that once he kind of got more if you want to call it unleashed whatever you want to call it once he got maximized he became an even better player some of that was being around better talent but regardless the point to me is that if if you're if you're trying to go to him and say hey we're a better organization now you know obviously they have the same owner so that's not a part of it but you know, we can we can do this around you and that when you look at their last decision was hiring the same coach that they fired the last time, why should he have faith that they're any that they're any better than they were then, except for having
2: Kyrie? Well, I agree with you with everything you said, but I think there's something else that we're we're totally missing out with the Cleveland organization, which I think would deter LeBron to go there, is just look at the last three drafts they've had. These the Cleveland Cavaliers draft Tristan Thompson, Deion Waiters, and Anthony Bennett, and let's just let's just play what if for five seconds. If you said the Cleveland Cavaliers' current roster is Kyrie Irving, Tristan Thompson, Deion Waiters, and Anthony Bennett as young emerging talent, versus hey, I have Kyrie Irving, Jonas Valanciunas, I have Harrison Barnes, and I have Victor Oladipo on that same roster. That becomes a lot more appealing for LeBron, whoever the coach is, because if LeBron's like, I want to come to Cleveland, they'll get the coach out of there if they ask him. Like it's 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 one of those things like they will bite the bullet to make LeBron happy. But I think LeBron's gonna look at that roster and say, what the hell is Anthony Bennett? Is he a, what? I don't even what is this player? What are you gonna do with him? Tristan Thompson can't think his mind up if he wants to shoot with his right hand or his left hand. And Deion Waiter, Waiters may or may not have punched a star player in the face. Like, I just don't know if LeBron wants those types of problems. Which, I man, like, we really might be giving Cleveland a major pass, Danny. Look at those three picks I just named. And look at people that are immediately below them. And you start wondering, how much did they really whiff? Because Cleveland could be building something that Golden State and Oklahoma City couldn't even dream of now you also could say look if they draft Eunice, if they draft harrison barnes maybe they don't have a chance to get the number one pick some these things are all variables and i get it but i think it's it's hard to question that they missed compared to the other players that were below on the draft board and along with the type of roster moves they've made which they really haven't made any roster moves outside of, outside of Jared Jack, which I think was the best signing they've made. They gave Earl Clark some money. They still have never drafted a small. They have never acquired a small forward worth a damn. I think he's just gonna look at Cleveland and be like, I'm not going there. And I, I can't. I I I I think it's almost a pipe dream to say that he does. And um, I think the coach is like the least of the least of the concerns.
1: You you bring up an excellent point with the draft. There's an amazing narrative there that in three, I believe it's three drafts in a row, they passed on elite center players to draft players who play positions that are generally considered less valuable. They passed on Jonas to take Tristan Thompson. Yep. They passed on um, Drummond to take Waiters. Yep. And then they passed on Noel to take Anthony Bennett. And they traded up in, in the middle of those three years to get Tyler Zeller. Yep. So what, what, you're, what you're looking at, to me, is an organization. That's why I rank them towards the bottom. I think they were like third from the bottom in my off season rankings because I, I graded on a curve based on the resources you have. And they had the number one pick, and they got a guy who has upside. I'm not going to say that Anthony Bennett doesn't. But if your goal is to get LeBron – if you're basically, to me, if you're Cleveland, since LeBron James left – and you saw that you weren't even able to get free agents to come there when you had the best player in the league, the best young player in the league, who guys are flocking with now going pay taking the minimum to play with. Yep. That if you can't get guys like that, then your whole job as an organization is to spend the next 4 years making it so that he'll want to come back. Because he's your best chance because there just aren't many great players that come from there. He they have a they have a pull with him that no other team has like LA has the benefit with Kevin Love and Russell Westbrook of being like oh this is where you went to college Westbrook that's where he's from and hey it's also big media market hey it's also the stuff with Cleveland they have to go after the guys who it's home for because that's who you do and so to to do that and then to whiff as badly as they did that's a separate issue but then to take your last pick and say hey you know what when we're trying to get the last guy to convince this guy to come here this summer we're going to take a project we're going to take a guy who you're going to have to say, you're going to have to be looking off into the distance and saying, hey, in three years or two years, this guy's going to be really good. That was a strange tactical decision.
2: Yeah, and Cleveland has never seemed to be the type that it makes strong tactical decisions, at least not in the last 20 years. So I think the days of LeBron and you know, Miami will continue, and you know, God bless Cleveland. I hate to say, I've, I've been there. I, Danny Danny LaRue, have you been to Cleveland before?
1: I have. Actually, I have family right around there.
2: Okay. Do you ever go visit them?
1: I've been there twice ever.
2: Yeah. That, and you, I can tell clearly you've not been motivated to go back anytime soon. So, yeah, God bless Cleveland. I'm just going to leave it at that.
1: Yeah, I I love Cleveland. I just think that it's it's hard for them. And I think that this is, to me, the great the great kind of truth in the league is that, there's a group of teams that are going to have trouble getting free agents, and so what they have to do is they have to they have different rules that apply to them, and I, I think at the same point you can say that there are different rules that apply to New York and LA, and it's and so what you have to do is you have to understand what the the constraints that you're playing under under a given CBA obviously they can change, and then you you work your butt off to maximize with that. I think the classic example of that was Houston. Houston knew that the only way that they could get an elite talent was by either retaining somebody that they already that they already had so what they did with what they ended up doing with Harden or somebody they drafted conceptually or they could get it they could have enough space for one guy and make a team so good that they could pull one guy who wasn't happy where he was so Houston's like okay this is how we can do it they did it and it got done cleveland's never really and a lot of other teams have never really embraced their situation to maximize from that
2: yeah I agree. And 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 to be fair, like I think, you know, Daryl Morey at some point at Houston was under the microscope. They I think 2 years ago, was it last year, the year uh maybe 2 years ago, you know, they had this talent, they had a bunch of guys that, you know, were, you know, Morey ball guys almost, you know, they were finding value, right? But they were they kept whiffing on getting talent. And really, you know, James Harden fell into their lap. I think it was almost a, a freak incident that they got James Harden. That wasn't something that they had been planning for planning for a long time, but they put themselves in a situation so that if something like that were to occur that they could take advantage of it. It's not that much different than say what the then New Jersey Nets did with Utah. Utah decided that, hey, we don't see this thing going with going forward. With Darren Williams going all that well, who's a team that can give us some immediate assets that we can continue to move forward with? And the Nets were like, "Hey, we'll give you Derek Favors and a draft pick and blah blah blah." And the trade went all of a sudden happened, and the Nets were now a benefactor of being a eastern, a legitimate Eastern Conference player. Um, and the same thing happened with Harden. And now, now when they got Harden, now they have Dwight. I don't, I, but I will say, Danny, I think it's interesting because you look at teams like Portland, right? Or you look at teams like, you know, Cleveland I thought could have been that team, right? Or you look at a team like Detroit a year ago who, you know, you look at Portland, they've kind of been slow and steady, slow and steady to continue to use our talent, Listen, continue to build in-house. And you look at Detroit and they're like, well, we got this money. We got new money. Let's spend it. Let's bring in Josh. Let's bring in Brandon, whoever. And I think you have to start – thinking about this road of patience and Cleveland. I think it's trying to play the road of patient. They're trying to go down this road, but they've took, took so many missteps with their draft picks that they're, they're not in a great position right now. Now I'm not saying it can't get better, but they're not in the greatest of positions. And I think Houston's now in a point where they still got a couple of moves left because it seems like everybody's convinced that a Sheik could be traded soon. Now, Side note to all of that, I think it would be potentially awesome to see a three way trade with like Houston in Indiana in New Orleans. So somehow, some way, maybe Danny Granger goes leaves Indiana, you put a Sheik on a team like New Orleans and you see a team like uh Indiana like Houston get someone like Ryan Anderson or Eric Gordon or some something like that and you see those pieces move around. And that's just really hypothetical. I don't even know if that works in a trade machine. I'm not the Bill Simmons trade machine guy. But Houston still got moves to make. And and they still got assets. They still got Terrace Jones over there. They still got draft picks that are they they still yet to use, I believe. So I don't know, Danny. I mean I I'm jealous of Houston right now, and I think a lot of other teams are too, definitely. The other
1: the the last thing with Houston that I think is really interesting is that they also benefited pretty substantially in terms of how things ended up from the Chris Paul trade getting vetoed. Absolutely. And so you think about that in a relatively short span that they get a trade that would have been good for them. I understand why they were frustrated that it got vetoed in the short term, but in the long term allowed them to retain the assets that they used to get Harden without losing the flexibility to get Dwight. And then having a series of teams turn down offers that now they would take in a heartbeat for Harden, and so they're like, okay, we have this offer. It's a pretty good offer, you know. It was a just of, it was a justifiable thing if ownership said you have to trade him now, to do that, and and so to and so to get those circumstances. But you know, that's John Wooden always says, success is where preparation meets opportunity. They were prepared with the resources, and they got the opportunity twice, and they capitalized. And so I think that's that's the model in some ways for teams is you know build your stuff up and understand what you are, embrace what you are, and do your best to get guys in the draft and hope that you can get somebody there.
2: Agreed. 100%.
1: Okay. uh, Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: It was a pleasure. Indeed. Definitely looking forward to hopping on again, man. Great show as always. And um, more luck and power to you moving forward, sir. Take care. All right, man.
1: Thanks again to Ed for coming on. You can read him on Sports Fan Journal, his SB Nation column, Happy Hour, and you can read him in Slam Magazine. You can also follow him on Twitter. His handle is at EdTheSportsFan. You can also read Stranya on RealGM, and his Twitter handle is his name. Appreciate having both of them on. Uh, looking forward to the next couple weeks of guests. And also looking forward to having a theme song. We have, I have it, it's already picked out, it's already done, but it ha- we haven't dotted the I's and crossed the T's on the contract, so that's why it's not in this issue. You can look forward to that next time. And again, I appreciate any insight that can make the show better. You can send it to me at daniel.larue at realgm.com, or it'd be better to send it to my Twitter handle, which is at danielarue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I like your mood.